Welcome to Gospel Matters, where the gospel interacts with everyday life. Well, it's great to be back. We're uh, glad you decided to join us again this week for another episode. And, and we're continuing on in our series, Demystifying Discipleship. Last week, we started off in this series, and we had a great conversation, you and I, Casey, about uh, discipling our children, discipling in the in the household, discipling each other as husband and wife, and discipling children, and uh, what an important thing that is. And 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 God commands us to uh, throughout our lives, at every stage, at every point, to disciple our kids. And we had a great conversation about that last week. So we're going to move on this week and talk about another important topic: discipling friends and neighbors. So first off, how are you doing today, Casey? I'm doing great, Brent. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I've had a lot of different conversations with people, uh, both in our faith community and, and outside, about the issue of discipleship and finding an opportunity and a way for uh, us to encourage and empower people that, hey, this idea of as Jesus commanding his disciples, as you go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that he commanded, and, and lo, he is with us always to the end of the age. And as Jesus gives that command, um, I think there's a lot of mystification of what that, that looks like in 21st century time. Yeah. And what we want to do is kind of blow the smoke out of the way and say, hey, the purpose of discipleship is a response to the grace that we've received and has been realized in our life because of God's salvation given to us through his son, Jesus. And so in obedience, as we walk with him, the natural overflow of that should be a life of discipleship, both being discipled and, and discipling others. And so I'm really excited about uh, talking about that next step. Once you have a cultivation of discipleship in your home, what does it look like for the Lord willing overflow um, in the in the faith that, that God is stirring in your home? What does it look like for that to then pour over into common relationships, neighbors, coworkers, so on and so forth? Well, let's talk about this for a minute from this perspective, okay? Because I think there might be uh, some confusion of people who are listening to this, and let's try. So let's clear up some terms real quick. So as we're talking about going outside of the house and and uh, talking to friends and family, maybe maybe you know distant relatives or or coworkers, at what point do we say, well, this is actually just evangelism, and versus this is discipleship, or is there really a difference? Is this a is this a kind of a distinction uh, that has a difference? I- I think evangelism is the beginning of discipleship because unless one is evangelized to the one who they're being discipled into the image of, then they can't know. But evangelism in the very uh, root of the term is is good news, sharing that of the good news, that we were dead in our sin, separated from God, deserving wrath, but God sent his son Jesus to live the life we could not live, die a death that we deserve on the cross, being dead and buried, and by God's power being raised from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan after three days so that we, whoever believes in him, will not uh, live life and die separated from the Father. And so that message, that good news is part of discipleship. But I, I think evangelism, yes, is there's some people that are just can go. I, I, know, I, I know a few people that go up to anybody and share the gospel and, and people are like coming to faith. But the problem is, even if those people come to faith and have no one there, there to teach them, how is that helpful? Because I, th- I think there's this idea of perseverance throughout the New Testament that it's not just making a decision at one time, right. but that decision right. is to then take up your cross and follow Jesus and to have those around you training you. What does that mean then? Who is the one I really know and my Savior? And so I, I see them both because also for those who are believers, we constantly need to be reminded of the gospel, that we aren't good enough. We're not becoming good enough, but God is good enough, and he accomplished all that needs to be accomplished through Jesus. And so, yeah, some of it might fall more in the evangelism category, 
uh, per se as far as engaging with those who do not yet know Jesus or as some refer to them as lost people. But the reality is as they engage with those who don't know Jesus, um, the aim is discipleship, not just conversion. Well, so is it fair to say that discipleship in terms of the term probably encompasses evangelism, that it's evangelism is part of discipleship, maybe just at the beginning stages of that for somebody who doesn't yet know the gospel? Absolutely. It's absolutely that. Um, so as we're thinking about our coworkers, as our friends, our neighbors, this group of this amorphous group of people who are kind of in our circle of influence, um, how should we think about uh, opportunities to disciple them in their context? Number one, what's what's our responsibility to that group of people? Yeah, I mean, we have a responsibility to understand our identity as. Uh, ambassadors for Jesus Christ, as Paul talks about in Second Corinthians chapter five, around verse twenty or so, talks about how we are ambassadors of Christ, representatives for Christ. And so, I think a lot of times um, in our culture and in many cultures, people separate different aspects of their life. And so, when they're wearing the friend hat, they're not wearing the Christian hat. And when they're going to church and they're wearing the Christian hat, but the friendships they have there are different than the friendships they have on Tuesdays at the softball field or whatever, right? And and, and the call to Christ is, hey, you belong to Christ first. Your identity is in Christ. As, as the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so this idea of, hey, you're always with Christ. This idea of being born again isn't so that we can be saved and then go and live our life our merry way. It's now coming with a realignment of our entire identity being in Christ and therefore as we engage with friends or neighbors or coworkers or family members, that our identity has been purchased and therefore marked and sealed because of the work of Jesus. So how do we live out that identity in a way? I think what a lot of people are, are maybe uh, concerned about or, or maybe a little bit hesitant about is that when I think about telling somebody, well, you need to go out and be an ambassador for Christ, what, what, what does that mean? Does that mean I go out and hand out tracks at the baseball, at my kid's t-ball field, or that, that I tell everybody, you know, Jesus loves you, you know, when I go up and order my food at McDonald's? <laughs> what, what does that mean practically? How do we live differently than the rest of the world as ambassadors for Christ in a way that people can certainly identify us as ambassadors of Christ, but maybe that doesn't recall some of the Maybe I don't know how to say it. The cheesier things right. that maybe yeah, we come the, to associate cube, with it. You know, exactly. You pull out the Rubik's cube of the Lord and fold it out to the gospel, and uh, you know, and some people have gotten saved by that. Praise God! But here's what I would say: I would think through it this way: that what if we began living a life not just a proclamation, but of that of explanation? So that, for instance, uh, I've been able to share the gospel in various ways numerous times by just being patient whether it's at a doctor's office or in line at the grocery store or with the waiter or waitress. And they were like, oh my gosh, you've been so patient. Thank you. And I say, look, God's been so patient with me. I'd love to share more with you when you have time. Something like that. Then it's like, what? Well, what do you mean God's been patient with you? And yeah. then have, have our testimony, our story. What is our story? And I remember I had one professor say uh, to all of us in seminary, he said, hey, be able to tell your story of faith, coming to faith in three minutes or less. And if you don't know my testimony, my testimony is one that I usually take 40 minutes to share with people on stage and 
But I've been able to cut my testimony down to three minutes or less, just talking about my life before Christ, the way that I met Jesus, and how my life's been since, and then opening it up to, to, to engage with more questions. And so when, when we think of, you know, yeah, I mean, some people hand out tracks and that works with their personality, and God gives them favor with people, and that people don't feel awkward, but it wins some. But I know a whole bunch of people that think they're obeying God by pushing people away, and it's like, okay, we've got to be a bit more organic in how we think about that while not shying away from being um, uh, encouraged to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Is it fair to say that part of this uh, dynamic is first knowing your particular skills and abilities, yeah. how you're wired, how you're geared, how do you best communicate with people, and also knowing your audience. That's it. I mean, it, and learning to ask good questions. I mean, I tell that to parents. I tell that to married couples. Asking good questions. I mean, one thing I ask people, like some, you know, I'm meeting, having a conversation, is like, so what's your spiritual background? How'd you grow up? People love talking about themselves and let them kind of share, you know, oh, I grew up Catholic or I, I'm Jewish or I didn't really have one growing up. And then I'll ask, well, do you, do you still think about spiritual things these days? You know, okay, well, what forms the way you think about those things, you know? Yeah. And, and just, you know, so, I mean, but for me, I'm, I'm naturally inquisitive. I'm a con- conversationalist. I'm also a coach, so I like to you know share application about how God has worked in my life and helped other people. But yeah, I mean, part of it's just knowing who you are. And, and I think, yes, the gospel is offensive to people. It is. But I think a lot of times those proclaiming the gospel behave offensively um, because they're not taking into consideration or they're, they're being lazy or impatient with the gospel effect. That, you know what, it may take two years of conversations before God chooses to save somebody. And and so you can't just like take your ball and go home after one conversation or they say something that stumps you or you know they make a good point. You, you, you have to have the long view of mind that the Lord may save them right now or this may be one link in a long chain towards their salvation. Yeah, yeah. How important in this process of evangelism and in discipleship in general is the establishment of a relationship, a long-term relationship in your mind? I, I, I can't imagine long-term consequential growth without real relationship. And, and that's a big problem because if you believe the gospel is merely transactional, God paid something and gave you something and now you pay him back, then you miss the whole purpose of all this anyways, right? The fact is God created us for relationship, but we chose to go against God. So God instituted the law and sacrifices for transactional purposes to restore relationship, which ultimately led to his son, Jesus, who he loved dearly, his only son, in relationship to die in our place, to restore that relationship so that we can walk dependent on our Father in heaven. And so relationship, discipleship outside the context of relationship is very limited. Not that God can't use books or podcasts or things like that to help people, but ultimately not having biblical community by which you can grow and be refined and sharpened and pushed back on um, is very difficult to see that happen. So in your mind, let's talk specifics about these specific groups. Um, uh, you have some friends that you've known for a long period of time. You know, they're not Christians. You know, they don't go to church. How, how do you create opportunities to begin talking about the gospel with your friends? Yeah, I, I mean, again, I'll, I mean, I'll ask good questions. I'll share something I've been learning. And it's almost like being a pastor, it makes it dip more difficult because it's my job. And so for me to open my mouth when I talk about the Lord, I almost become Bible answer man for the inquisitive non-believer yeah. because they want to try out their big facts so they can stump their nominal Christian friends who don't really know anything, and they want to test them out on me first. And so it's a little bit more challenging. I know in seasons when I wasn't serving the local church as a pastor, I was then able to you know engage in a lot of questions, but it's just really asking questions, spending time, caring for people. 
um, taking an interest in their lives and then being able to have meaningful things to say to some of the life's hardest issues, which I believe the Bible speaks to. Uh, coworkers, yeah. How do you do that well in this in the context of the office, so that you're not violating human resources policies? Right. You're not, you know, constantly sending emails that about about God that maybe you know violate company policy, whatever the case might be. How do you do that well in the office so that people see you and know that you're a Christian and maybe feel free to engage in that uh, when it's it's an office setting? Yeah, I, I I live the gospel, model it, let your your words be seasoned with it, build relationships outside of work, quit being stingy, buy a meal for somebody, um, you know, and, and invite people into your lives outside of the church, or I mean, outside of work, you know, and it doesn't mean that they go from being a lost friend of yours from a different faith background in a cubicle next year's to them coming to church. But I, I know people who have, their kids are being dedicated at, at church or something's going on. And so they would invite their non-believing friends to come support, show support and the friends would. And, and then that would be the first step in beginning some spiritual conversations, explaining what they're doing with their children um, or what baptism means or, or things like that. Um, you know, I think you'd be careful and I wouldn't, I wouldn't send, you know, forward emails or, um, I, but I really think I know that people who live their lives really impacted by the gospel of Jesus um, bring about curiosity. And I think, I think we, constantly under uh, value the power of prayer and what it means to be praying for our non-believing friends at work, that God would stir in their lives or that crisis would come. And not that we want crisis to happen on people, but when crisis comes, because life happens, that we would be people that they would reach out to. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, hey, I don't really know why I'm calling you. And part of it, you know, you wouldn't be tempted to be offended, like, well, why wouldn't you call me? But, you know, it's more of that thing where God, I think, prompts it on people's hearts to bring people to speak gospel truths. Um, to people in, in important moments of their lives. And so, you know, I think there's ways to do it just to be... And the problem is most people, they don't do it because they're not even thinking about it, right? And so it's hard for me to say, well, HR or whatever, fine. But but if you're, if you're not inclining your heart and your mind in openness to what God is up to, you'll never see those opportunities. And you don't have to go and break HR, you know, rules or violations to, uh, or, you know, forward a bunch of emails to begin that process of evangelism. But being kind to people, being generous with people, being patient with people, yeah. covering for people, and modeling the gospel goes a real long way. Yeah, absolutely. B- being being that good employee, that good person to work with, absolutely, uh, goes a long way to, to helping create those kinds of conversations. Inviting people out to lunch yep. off work hours, inviting them over for dinner or whatnot. Birthday parties for your kids. I mean, there's a whole lot of things. You know, just but, but, but the problem with most believers is that they don't even, they're not even open to the idea of discipleship, right? And so... To demystify it is like, hey, we're called to do it. It's not that hard. Even though there are there are things in the way, God is still saving people in countries that the gospel is not even allowed to go into, but God's still making a way. So if God can make a way to give a person of a different faith a vision of Jesus and they repent and trust Jesus, then he can make a way for your guy in the cubicle next to you to open up a conversation in a way that's not violating HR. So let me ask you this one, another hard one. Okay. Uh, you know somebody, but you also know, and you know that they're an unbeliever. But you also know that you haven't acted very Christian towards them. Yeah. Or you've made a fool of yourself here or there, or you know you sinned in front of them. Um, how do you redeem that? Because that ultimately comes to kind of a level of insecurity, you know. Like I'll start talking about the gospel with that person, but uh, they kind of know that I haven't really been acting like I believe the gospel for a long time. How do you begin to redeem that relationship or overcome that kind of insecurity? So the first thing you do, number one, is repent yourself. <laughs> Because as much as you might have offended them or hindered the gospel for them, you've offended your Savior right. for living a duplicitous life. And so um, I'd repent. And then, 
you know, I'd start walking differently in repentance. And then when there's an opportunity, I would apologize to that person. Because, I, you know, I, I quote this often in Romans one thirty two. Romans one thirty two is one of the scariest because it's talking about after God had handed people over to the hardening of their hearts for all types of sin. He says, you not only do those things, although you know better, but you give hearty approval to those who do them as well. And, and that's what's terrifying to me is that you're a Christian. You've been forgiven and saved. You can go and make sinful choices, but at the end of the day, you're still forgiven. But you're affirming sinful behavior in other non-believers who will pay for eternity of their sin in hell. And you're giving permission to it and encouraging it. And if that doesn't cause you to pause and be heartbroken and repent, then I encourage you to consider your own salvation because there are, there are huge consequences there. But it's never too late to, to repent before the Lord and then to repent before those friends saying, hey, look, I'm a follower of Jesus, and God's been doing a lot of me lately, and, and I realize that I'm almost embarrassed to even tell you I'm a Christian or really talk more about it because I have not given a fair or accurate representation of what that means these last three years working together. And so I just want to apologize to you for one, treating you this way or for getting wasted at every company you know thing there or for cheating on my numbers here or whatever, whatever the sin is. I think that goes a long way. And then walking in the freedom of that repentance, I think, could— could say even, yeah, it's humiliating, but what you're basically saying is, I don't want to do that because I'd rather I'd rather not be humiliated and let them continue on perpetually in unbelief than to humble myself because I've already been set free from all scrutiny through Christ, to humble myself, apologize, and then begin to aspire to walk differently. Well, it seems to me that that, that mentality requires two things, humility, which you mentioned, but yeah. also courage. Uh, absolutely. It requires some courage to, to go ahead and, and admit your mistakes, admit your faults, overcome your pride, and uh, and. Exp- and and become vulnerable like that. I always feel so much better though when I actually admit my sin and like and and just say, you know what, I've blown it. And usually for both believing and non-believing people, like, oh, it's okay. Are you too hard on yourself or whatever? I mean, I've had I've had those conversations with roommates, and for time's sake, I won't go into much of that right now. But I, you know, I had a roommate in college that when I really started to get serious about walking with Jesus, there are some ways that I would behave, things I would say that were not in keeping with the gospel. And he looked at me like a crazy person when I apologized for some of those things. But I know it opened up doors later on for us to continue having conversations about the gospel because I owned it in front of him. And um, and although he didn't think it was necessary, I know that added some equity in that relationship with him because I think even if he didn't agree, he respected the fact that I care enough about what I say I believe um, to say something about it. So let's let's deal with uh, – let's piggyback off that and, and let's ask this question. What other insecurities do you think Christians battle with when it comes to discipling, evangelizing and discipling their friends and their neighbors? Uh, what other what other insecurities do you think they have? Oh, fear of rejection is huge. It's huge, man. I mean, it's it's like, will they accept me if I tell them this? Will they accept me if I confront them? And again, that goes back to rightly valuing the gravity of what happens if they reject Christ. You know, because rejection of you, well, that, that can be overcome. Rejection of Christ, though, that's that's eternally... Um, horrible. And so I, 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 but I really think it's real for us, right? We don't want to be rejected. I mean, that's why I think a lot of people don't go say hi to someone they don't know at church on Sundays. Is they're afraid the person's not going to be kind back or be cold or, or they'll be too friendly and you're like, I already have too many friends and I'm busy. Good night. You know, one more person I'm having to think about, whatever the motivation, but I think most of it's a fear of rejection, which then also kind of hitting on that is also, I think there's this, this, this inherent laziness where it's like, oh, that's going to take work. I mean, it's, 
what if they do trust Christ? What am I supposed to do then? Does that mean I have to start meeting with them weekly? Mm-hmm. Or do I have to at least take mm-hmm. them to Casey's office at least once or make Pastor Brent meet with them? You know, it's a, just there's kind of this laziness and no plan in place to like, oh, what if they do come to faith? And guess what? People who are far from God know other people who are far from God. And if they really come face to face with God, then all of a sudden they're going to start telling their friends about it because they won't know any better. Um, but to start telling people, hey, man, I, I met Jesus. You need to come check it out. Well, and, and, and kind of, as kind of a side to that, kind of related to that issue, what about people who just don't have capacity? I mean, we're talking about a thing that requires some relational equity. You know, you, you got to build a relationship with the person. And I know a whole bunch of people out there saying, man, I can't fit one more relationship onto my busy plate. It's just too much for me. How do you answer that objection if there's somebody who thinks I'm just already maxed out? And you know me, I don't like being cold or calloused, but I tell people that they need to get rid of some stuff then on their schedule. Because Jesus, one of his last things to say was this to his disciples, it matters. And maybe we're just sinfully busy and we need to repent. And if we don't have capacity or time to make disciples in some way, because here's the deal. I get the argument. You have young kids at home. Moms are at home. They're like, I'm caring for my husband. I have two friends that I'm, I'm walking with. And then I'm trying to disciple my kids. I get that argument short term. I see it in my own home, but there's still more opportunity that we can be smart in how we do things and how we build relationships and all that. I think our culture, we we bought into the lie that we have to be slammed busy, that we are failing our children if they're not on the select dance team as a four-year-old or, you know, the, the extra, super extra baseball squad or football or whatever. And it's like, hey, this stuff really matters. And this is crazy talk for me to say, I know in, in our area that, hey, maybe it's not worth gaining the whole world and forfeiting your soul and the soul of those around you. But another thing I've heard, you know, people in our church do, their kids play sports. And so they engage with people um, whose kids are playing sports with them, you know. And so it, it, there is this idea, as Jesus gives a great commission of as you're going to make disciples while going, that there are, are ways and opportunities we can do that along the way. Um, but, you know, if you're like, well, if I do that, then I can never hang out with my other friends. Well, bring your other friends along. You know, if you and another guy are, you know, like hanging out and disciple each other and a new guy comes to faith, I know it's not as cool and it's awkward getting new people in, but it's like, it's worth it. That's the big deal. It's like, we've got to come back and, and you know what, there's a season for everything. So let's say there's a three month stint. You just have no time to engage with anybody else. Okay. But you got to acknowledge that and start cutting some things back. Yeah. You know, in our home, we limit the nights, number of nights where we're doing activities, extracurricular activities. So we can try to do the best we can to be somewhat missional in our own neighborhood. Is it always easy that way? No, certain seasons it's not. But we, we sit and plan and ask what, what can go into our life or come from our life that'll free us up to engage in the Great Commission with our Lord. And I think that's the key right there. I mean, you just mentioned it. Uh, if we're going to demystify this topic at all, it's, people have to think about it. Yeah. Uh, you talked about earlier that uh, one of the big problems with uh discipling friends, evangelizing to friends and family, co-workers, is that we're just not intentional about it. We don't think about it. Right. We put on different hats for different situations. Or and we get weird, man. We turn into like thinking that we have to wear like old white shiny shoes and get a big big bouffant haircut we don't. in order to be evangelists. No, no white <laughs> shiny shoes unless it's just in. But no, I mean, that, that's exactly it. it it's, it's, it's just thinking about it. I mean, we had, I had a couple invite me over to their house uh, a week or two ago, last Wednesday, so a week ago, and I was talking with them about their reaching out to their neighbors and, oh, oh my gosh, someone getting saved and other people are getting plugged in and what do we do and how do we grow and scale it 
I'll give my, I told him this. I was like, don't ever apologize for asking us to talk with you about how to have more gospel impact in your area, right? We are, I mean, our call, right, Brent, as elders and pastors is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to come coach alongside of you, to help equip you, to give you resources that help you yes. in, in doing that. And so we're not saying, hey, guys, we wanted to mystify this so y'all can go do it. Good luck. But saying, hey, we're with you um, and we want to help guide you and train you and coach you. But, but, I refuse to do all this ourselves. We can't make the disciples that need to be made out here. But if we start catching that vision, realizing discipleship and friends and family and all that, um, and, and our neighbors, um, we could change the world, man. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Casey. I appreciate that that good advice. And, and I hope for all of our listeners out there that you, you do take this opportunity, if you're listening to this podcast, to sit down maybe with your wife or with your husband or with your group, close group of friends and really think about intentionally how you can begin discipling to the people around you. Start small, but think about it. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about uh, demystifying discipleship when it comes to our discipleship groups. For those of you who go to Christ Community Church, uh, who are in a community group, or maybe we're thinking about getting in community, uh, discipleship groups are a very important method in which we use to disciple each other. So we're looking forward to talking about that next week. Hope you'll join us on our next episode of Gospel Matters.